And behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. (laughs) On Mount Zion stood the Lamb. That's how Revelation 14 begins. And if you've been tracking with our study of Revelation, that statement may have grabbed your attention because the lamb is standing on Mount Zion, but do you remember the last standing statement? I started last week's sermon with the final verse in chapter 12, which sounds like this. And he, the dragon, stands on the sand of the sea. So here it is again. We see this contrast that keeps appearing over and over in the book of Revelation, where on the one hand, you have the dragon standing on the shore of the sea, the sea marked with chaos and disorder, and out of that sea emerges, as we saw last week, the Antichrist, this political ruler who uses the government and its system to do the devil's bidding and to persecute God's people, and then Out of the earth comes this false prophet who uses religion to deceive the world and to make people believe that they should say crazy things like, who is like the beast? He's standing on the shore of the sea. It's an overwhelming, fearful strategy. And yet the call last week was for believers to endure, for us to embrace faith and belief and wisdom And I hope that last week's sermon helped you to just live one more week faithfully if you're a Christian and here you are back again. And Revelation 14 is another standing moment. But the lamb doesn't stand on the sea, doesn't stand on the sand of the sea, he stands on Mount Zion. And what's more we learn, the lamb is not alone. He's standing with 144,000. It's a picture of this great conflict between good and evil, a picture of what is yet to come. The devil is standing, the lamb is standing, and the scene is set for a collision that's gonna happen, a collision that is happening even now. So the rest of this chapter helps us to understand this conflict with an implied exhortation to live with the end in mind. Or I could summarize it this way. This is the main thought for today's message. We need to live, church, for judgment day. We need to live for judgment day. I want to unpack what I mean by this, and if you're not a Christian, I want to help you understand what the Bible says about this and why it's important, really important for you to understand. If this is like the first time you've ever been in church, you're like, what, blood to the horse's bridle? What in the world? Yeah, there's crazy things in the Bible. Like, yeah, Jesus is coming back on a white horse. Like, I mean, it's, there's, there's all kinds of things, and they're here for a reason. I want to help you understand it. So what I want to do is help you see this text through, first, the Lamb's people, Secondly, this heavenly message, and third, the judgment. And then I wanna unpack, very briefly, three applications. How do we think about this? So let's start with the Lamb's people. Verse one 
of chapter 14, look at it, it's a dramatic shift. After everything about the beast, the sea beast, the earth beast, the dragon, chapter 14, verse one, then I looked and behold, that's, that's a hey, hello, 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 look, 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 look. John is surprised, he's amazed, he saw a dragon, it was fearful. His, his heart no doubt fails what your heart feels like. Oh my goodness, this level of wickedness is incredible. And sometimes, isn't it, the wickedness of the world is overwhelming and deeply discouraging. I talked with a number of you last week, you saw the applications of many of the things I talked about. You're in places in life and business and in our marketplace and education where you're, you're, you're feeling the, the, the pressure of what it means to be so different than everyone else. How you think about gender and identity and sexuality. It's not just your religious beliefs, that's, that's part of it. Like where do you go when you die? But it's about how you think about male and female and life's most intimate categories. And this is a really important moment. We, we, we don't live theoretically in a post-Christian culture. We are living in a post-Christian culture. And we need to figure out how to be different without being defensive. We need to figure out how to be clear without being caustic. Revelation helps us. It helps us to live. Where's this going? Where's this headed? So many things are changing. So what, what, do, I, what do I think? How do I live? Well, John wants us to see, behold, there's something here, and, and he, he wants you to see what he's seeing, and here is this lamb again, a lamb who is standing on Mount Zion. Why Mount Zion? Well, Mount Zion is more than just a location. You could think of this like somebody in our United States context saying, hey, did you hear what happened on Capitol Hill yesterday? Capitol Hill is literally a hill, it's where the capital is, but Capitol Hill is representative of something more. It's, it's representative of Washington, D.C. It's representative of the Congress. It's representative of representative power. That's what Capitol Hill means, and that's what Mount Zion means. It's a term connected to a place of deliverance and a place of salvation. It's connected to where God is ruling it's more than just the city of Jerusalem. It involves that, but it's more of the concept. Mount Zion is where God lives and where God dwells. In Revelation 21, we'll see a new Jerusalem, and that's the idea, but it's more broadly described here as Mount Zion. Then notice, it's not just the location that is stunning to John, it's who is with him. Here we have, again, with him, the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Just to remind you, some people take this to be literally 12,000 from every tribe of the nation of Israel. Others take this to be a more symbolic number for the church, since in chapter seven, it also includes a reference to people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. But for our purposes, again today, I just want to give you the main point, which is whoever exactly these people are, what is clear, they are God's people. And they are with the lamb. <laughs> and that's what matters. What's more, notice, friends, what is on their foreheads. 
Remember the beasts, Mark 666 from the last chapter? Well, rather than the mark of the beast, these people have the name of the lamb and their father's name written on their foreheads. We see the same thing in Revelation chapter seven, where this name is connected to God's protective seal. Consider that for a moment. They have a mark that indicates they belong to God. It reminds me of a question from my childhood. I grew up in a church that had a particular form of liturgy that at times as a child I thought was incredibly boring. Admittedly, I was like enough already of this catechism thing. And yet, the first question of what's called the Heidelberg Catechism is very relevant. What, it asks, is your only comfort in life and death? Let's read the answer out loud together. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. Amen. That's who I am. I am not my own. I'm thankful being raised in a home where that truth just was a part of the world in which I lived. Take heart, parents. Your kids are hearing things that they may roll their eyes about and think are boring. But someday those truths will actually serve as a guardian for their soul. So don't quit. Keep praying, keep reading, keep talking, keep pushing. The point of this mark is it's an identity marker. It is that God's people belong to him. Now, I didn't have time to fully unpack this or explore this, but I just thought for a moment, you know it's significant, it's not on their hand. Where is it? It's on their forehead. What's the unique thing about being on a forehead? Guess who can't see it? <laughs> right, there's, I don't, I don't know the name of the game, I should have researched it, but there's some game where you put a card in your forehead and people have to guess. What is that thing called, do you know? I can't hear you, okay, you know the game. All right, so there's a game out there uh, someone will tell me about it later. Uh, and, and, but the thing is, is, is everybody else can see it, but you can't. So you gotta guess what's on the card on your forehead and everyone else is telling you or trying to tell you, describe to you what's there. And I just thought, isn't that what church is? We gather regularly to remind each other who we really are. We, we, we remind one another who we really belong to. Verse two. I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. So it's a voice and it sounds like a lot of water and loud thunder. It's, John's trying his best, folks. Just, you know, he, he's got something here that's just so amazing. And yet the voice I heard, this loud voice, like water and thunder, was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So John realizes, oh, no, 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 this isn't a loud noise. That's what I thought it was at, for, at first. Rather, what this is, this loud noise is actually singing. 
And then we find that in the same location as in chapter four and five, this throne room, suddenly there emerges, verse three, they were singing a new song before the throne. A new song. James Hamilton in his commentary says, new acts of conquest call for new songs of praise. But notice what's unique about this song. Verse three, no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So take note, this is really important. Their redemption makes it possible to learn the song. It's not that they're gonna learn the song so that they'll be redeemed. No, no, it's their redemption that allows them to sing the song even to learn it. So mark it down somewhere in your heart. If you're a Christian, you're not just a singer, you're a worshiper, and there's a big difference. Christians are worshipers who sing. Or think of it this way, melody follows identity. We sing because of who we are. So why do we gather and sing? Because of our identity. And one of the things that Sundays help us with is to remind us, oh yeah, this is who I am. This is who I am. This is who I am. This is who I belong to. These are my people. God is my king and savior and my redeemer. And these are the things that I've given my life to. Beyond their singing, we find that this is a righteous group. Verse four, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So they're described as, with terms, like sexual purity language. They follow the lamb. They're described as first fruits. They're described as not being liars. They're described as blameless. So what do we do with this list? You have to be careful with it. The point is, is that they're marked by an otherworldly righteousness and obedience. John's using symbolic language. Take just, for instance, the reference to, to virgins and not defiling themselves with women. If you take that too literally, then it's only men can't be that. What's more, they'd have to be single. Can't be that. What's more, they'd have to be blameless, like they've never done anything wrong or they've never lied, literally, and as a result, nobody would be included in that list. No one. And at the same time, I don't want to diminish what John is driving at and what he sees here, because what he sees is this. Listen, he sees a group of people who are so different. They're so radically different than the rest of the world. A theme will begin to emerge in these final chapters of Revelation of siding with the beast. And John will use a metaphor of being drunk with sexual immorality as a marker and a describer of what it means to side with the beast. Paul uses similar language 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at this text. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So one of the things that this book helps remind us about, even with imagery like this, is the importance of what it means to be sealed with the name of God and how that relates to our conduct in the world. Listen, if you're a Christian, God has marked you as his. You belong to him. And as a result, obedience isn't just what you do. Listen to me, it's who you are. You were made to be holy. The power of the Holy Spirit within you has a gravitational pull so that you love things that you wouldn't have loved before. You sing about things that you would have thought were crazy. You long for particular things related to obedience that don't make sense in the world. Therefore, when you live in the world, you ought to expect regularly for people to look at you like you've got two heads. Where are you from? You're an alien. You believe in Sexual faithfulness? What, did you come from the 60s? Not 60s, bad year. What, did you come from the 30s? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's what happens when I don't follow my notes. Okay, so anyways, <laughs> you get the point, right? You're gonna go off to college, be hanging out with your fraternity, sorority. You're gonna go into a particular business class. You got particular views on the world. You just got to expect, I am going to be an outsider. And you just are going to have to figure out how to be able to do that. And newsflash, most Christians in the world and in history have been in that position. And that's why this book is here. It's supposed to help us. You need to know who you are. Because if you don't know who you are, you're going to step into that and you're going to so want their affections, their approval. You're going to so want them to think you're cool and hip and cutting edge and relevant. But the effect would be you could compromise the very essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And on the other hand, if you don't know who you are, you could walk in as a spiritual flamethrower. It's like your job to... Want them to feel the burn, right? And you do it verbally with your attitude and your negativity and your pharisaical language. So you, you gotta know who you are because endurance is the mark of those who are successful all the way to the end. So again, live for judgment day, live for judgment day, live for judgment day. The vision of the lamb and the 144,000 is a reminder for us to live for that day, that I'm not my own. I was bought body and soul. I belong to Jesus Christ. And this truth will be unbelievably clear on judgment day. And we need to live with that reality in mind today. Christian, listen to me. You are part of the lamb's people. You're marked by Jesus. You're called to be righteous. You're gonna be different, and that's okay. The Lamb's people. Secondly, the heavenly message. What follows in verses six through 13 are three angels who carry 
a heavenly message. And these announcements relate to the coming judgment, they relate to the fall of Babylon, and they relate to specific judgment related to the beast's followers. First angel proclaims the gospel. Verse six, I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he cried or said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. So it's an urgency of the message because the end is coming. The second angel emerges, verse eight, with a statement that we'll hear again. In verse eight, it says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So Babylon, we're gonna see this, just a quick highlight. Babylon is the city and the system characterized by rebellion against God. The foundation of Babylon is Babel, the place where people said, let's build a name for ourselves, and God scattered them by confusing their languages. Babylon is the nation that dealt the final blow to Judah and destroyed the temple, took God's people into captivity. So Babylon represents more than a location. It represents an ideology. It represents an earthly system. It's a kingdom on earth that opposes God. It's a representative of the way in which people are led astray from being faithful to God's kingdom by virtue of the allure, specifically, of material prosperity and personal pleasure. You're gonna see this come in full display in 17 and 18 of the book of Revelation. Now, just take note of what Babylon represents. Fallen, fallen, he says, is Babylon. She who made all nations drink the wine of her passion, of the passion of her sexual immorality. Third angel, final message, is a sober warning about divine judgment. Let me just read this text to you, and let's just hear what God's word says. Revelation 14 and verse 9. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. That's the point poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Wow. If you're listening to this message today and you're not a Christian, I just want you to consider what I just read. This is in the Bible and this fearful warning is here to invite you to turn to Jesus while there's still time. You don't wanna be on the wrong side of God's righteousness, friend. You don't wanna be under God's judgment. For those of us who are Christians, this text should serve as a deep motivator as we think about how do we we impact the world for Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit in this next year, one person at a time. 
consider the really nice people at your office or at your school or in your relationship sphere or in your neighborhood, but they don't know Jesus. They are on the wrong side of God's judgment. And therefore, I wanna encourage you to live for Judgment Day. One of my friends quotes, I think it's a Brazilian proverb, and it goes like this, the heart cannot taste what the eyes have not seen. One of the ways it's helpful to understand the need for reaching unreached people groups is to go on a vision trip. That's what today is about. So it helps you. You go and see. It gets in your soul. You come back changed. Part of why this is in the Bible in such clear and poignant and even graphic, with a graphic picture, is to help us feel the importance of what this is all about. We'll talk more about this judgment in a moment. But I also want you to take note of verses 12 to 14, or 12 to 13, rather. It says, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So in the midst of all of this really heavy material, notice that again we hear this call for what? Endurance. Endurance. You've got to get endurance in the forefront of your strategy when you read Revelation and in order to live in a post-Christian world. Can I just remind you that throughout church history, God's people were rarely able to stop or prevent persecution. Our heroes throughout church history are not those who stormed the castle. Our heroes are those who refuse to stop believing and renounce their faith when the world crushed them or killed them. Their strategy was patient endurance. They held on to what they believed while the storms were coming over top of them. And listen, that's not only true in times of persecution, it's true for most of the Christian life. The forces of evil around us, church, are enormous. The brokenness of the world, pervasive. And in ourselves, we are utterly powerless. And yet God often calls his people to simply wait upon him to keep trusting and believing. The call is to wait upon him not to give in to things like anger or anxiety or apathy. You know these three problems, right? When we get nervous and defensive and we don't know what's going on and we fear the future, we go to anger, we gotta do something. So we take action, or we become anxious. We just think and think and think and think and think and think and think. Or apathy, you quietly quit on God. I don't care anymore. I'm just gonna go turtle, be quiet, keep my head down. Revelation 14 offers a different pathway. We are waiting for judgment day, and we're just gonna hold on until that day. That's not giving up. That's actually being faithful. We live for judgment day. Finally, we see the judgment. The third and final aspect of this exhortation is found in verses 14 through 20. There's two judgments. One is redemptive, one is punitive. One's redemptive, 
One's punitive. First judgment, verse 14. I looked, behold, a white cloud, seated in the cloud, was one like the Son of Man, with a crown on his head. I believe this is Jesus. And he has a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, sadly, the sickle, in your mind and mine, is probably related to the grim reaper, right? That's how we see it. But man, if you're a farmer, like sickle is payday, right? You use a sickle to cut your wheat, and that instrument was used to collect your harvest. It was like a, a sickle wasn't an instrument of judgment and destruction. It was, a, it was a moment when all of the things that you'd hoped for, now you're gonna get the bounty and the benefit of them. And so here we find that this angel, it's called it that way, comes out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. The idea is that in the middle of assemblies that are called Christian, like ours, the Bible tells us, Matthew 13, there are wheat and tares. There are those who are real and those who are not real. In this room and listening to this sermon are going to be those who are genuinely, genuine followers of Jesus and others who are not genuine followers of Jesus. And it's hard to know who is who. And this is the moment when that becomes clear. It becomes evident, it becomes obvious, and the harvest happens. Fakers are revealed to who they are, those who are genuine Christians, the fruit of their lives, the testimony of Jesus Christ, they're affirmed. That's what Judgment Day is. And until that day, we don't really know who's who. And that's why we're trying to help each other preserve and persevere all the way to the end. Because one of the ways that we know is who stays faithfully following Jesus. The second judgment is a fearful one in verse 17. This angel comes out of the temple and he too had a sharp sickle. This angel comes from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, and he says, here, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth, gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. This is not a good harvest. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's like the length of it. This is a graphic image. Let's be real. It's meant to be shocking. It's not just any winepress. It's the winepress of God's wrath. It's outside the city. It's a bloody scene. James Hamilton, in his commentary, says this, this text describes the moment when the bubble bursts. All the deceptive power of the sins that look romantic and appealing, all the false promises, the untrue enticements, all the whispering wishes will be exposed for what they are by the outcomes they produce. The weeds and the barren trees will be reaped. There will be no fruit on them for God's glory, no nourishing and refreshing yield, but only grapes for the winepress of wrath. What happens here, church? Listen. The sins of mankind have reaped their intended consequences. The sins of humanity have reached their zenith. Year after year after year, God was patient as human beings sinned and rebelled but there came 
And there will come a time when divine justice says, enough. Now, if you're not a Christian, you may think, this is awful. And I wouldn't disagree with you. But here would be how I think you would need to think about this. And if you're a Christian, listen, this is how I think we need to think about this. If you've ever been sinned against time after time after time after time after time by the same person and it doesn't stop, doesn't stop, and it doesn't stop, and it doesn't stop, and it doesn't stop, and it doesn't stop, and somebody steps in and says, enough, and then brings justice into that moment, there is a sense within your soul that there is a relief. Could it be? that we see this wrongly, naturally, because we don't have a clue about all that God sees or how bad it really is. Could it be that we don't have a clue about how glorious God is and righteous and pure and holy? And if we understood that, and if we understood the brokenness of the world, that there were recording devices, video and audio, and we could see everything happening, let's just say in the last 24 hours in our city and in our homes and in our lives. And we stacked all of that up and then we compared it to the glory of God. I think we might see Revelation 14 a little differently. And I hope, Christian, for you, It helps you when something comes across your purview, a word, a thought, a a feeling, an emotion, an image, an article, something that you can go, wait. And you can maybe do a reset of how bad and how glorious the realities are in Revelation 14. Now, what do we do with this? Let me just give you three things. What does this mean? What does it mean to live for judgment day? Why why is this in the Bible? This is in the Bible to help us live right now. How? Number one, it means if you're a Christian, your identity is fixed. Praise God in his grace, not in your goodness. I'm thrilled to think, my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. My name, the name of God is written on my forehead. It helps me to be reminded who I am because I know that when judgment day comes, my only hope on the great day is that I believe that Jesus is my savior and that God promised that he who has the son has life. And my only hope on that day is to say, you promised and my life is in him. And you said, if my life is in him, I have life. And God is good to keep his promise. And so I'm so thankful that the roots of my life are based not on my goodness. Oh, mercy, if they were. They are based on on the grace of God. Secondly, it means that my endurance, my endurance, your endurance, the ability to make it to the end is strengthened by this future day of reckoning. The judgment day helps me to live right now. How? Because I can live with the assurance that God knows what is true about me and I can live in light of that, not what others think of me. I can live by knowing there's a coming day when God's gonna make things right. 
He'll settle all accounts. I can live with freedom knowing that God is gonna take care of it. I don't have to get revenge. I don't have to be defensive. I don't have to defend myself because at the end of the day, this is not judgment day. Twitter is not judgment day. (laughs) Facebook is not judgment day. Instagram, really not judgment day. Your work, your boss, even your closest relationships. What matters is that future day. So I gotta live my life in light of that day. And the problem for many of us, including myself, is that day is way too far disconnected from where I'm living right now. I need to live for that day, live for that day, live for that day. Live for the audience of Jesus. And third, it means, friend, if you don't know Jesus, time is running out. Without being overly dramatic, there's coming a day when God is gonna say, stop. It could be the last beat of your heart. It could be at the end of the world, but there's coming an end. God has determined that day. And while we don't know that date, we do know one thing for sure. We are closer today than we were yesterday. And so, you're living for judgment day, if you're not a Christian, means, why don't you run to Jesus today? Why not turn from your sins, receive Jesus as your savior, and put yourself under the grace of God? Because when Jesus stands on Mount Zion, He stands with his people at his side. And I'd like for everyone in this room to be there. I'd like for us to live, live with judgment day in mind. So Lord Jesus, that day, coming day, that great day, one that needs to be felt. We pray that you would, in this very moment, help us to know how to live for that day. We thank you for heavy texts, important texts, really graphic texts that remind us of what's really going on in the world. We need that. And so we pray even now as we sing and do what Christians do. We're gonna sing because we're worshipers. We're gonna declare redemption because we've been redeemed, that you will push this reality deeper in our hearts so we'll know how to live more faithfully in this next week. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the presence of the spirit. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.